Thank you for listening to our Emmanuel Baptist Church podcast sermon series by Pastor Sean Cole. Emmanuel exists to display God's glory, declare God's gospel, and to disciple for God's great commission. If you have any questions about this message or would like more information about our church, you can visit our website at www.ebc-online.org. Now here's Pastor Sean. And as you're turning to Matthew chapter 5, I want you to know that I am a product of the 80s. I like 80s music, I like 80s movies, and probably the one movie that I've seen over and over again from the 80s, probably one of my favorite 80s movies, we, we saw it a lot in our family, is The Karate Kid, Daniel Sun and Mr. Miyagi. You know the story. There's a bad guy in Karate Kid movies, his name's Kreese. And if you remember the scene where Daniel Sun and Mr. Miyagi go into the dojo, and Kreese is training these high school boys, and if you remember what they say, Strike hard, strike fast, no mercy, sir. I can't hear you. And so he gets louder. Strike hard, strike fast, no mercy, sir. He's teaching his kids to show no mercy on an opponent. And you know the rest of the story. Daniel's son goes to the tournament, and they basically end up take, trying to take him out and not showing mercy. And these, these high school kids are kind of fearful of Crease because Crease is kind of a little bit of a maniac. And, and you know the very end of it, crane technique. If do right, no can defense. And so Daniel's son wins, and... Crease looks like an idiot and everything wins, right? No mercy, sir. We live in a world where people don't like to show mercy. All around us, we live in a cruel, merciless society where the powerful want to try to get an upper hand. Now, when you think about the word mercy for a moment, think back to the 20th century. When I list these list of names, does the word mercy come to your mind? The first name I'm going to mention from the 20th century is Hitler. Does that evoke images of mercy? He was responsible for the extermination of six million Jews in the Holocaust. Or what about Joseph Stalin, the dictator of the Soviet Union, who was responsible for the genocide of 20 million of his own people? Or Pol Pot, the dictator in Cambodia with the killing fields, he was responsible for over two million. Do you realize who the most vicious dictator was of the 20th century who showed no mercy to his people? It's the Chinese dictator Mao Zedong. Do you know how many Chinese were killed under his regime? 80 million people. He committed genocide. Cruelty. No mercy. Now I know this is a pleasant thought to think about the cruel acts of a dictator, or we think about Crease on Karate Kid. And these are used just to illustrate to us that, that, that there is a culture in which we live in where the culture says, strike hard, strike fast, no mercy, sir. Strike hard, strike fast, no mercy, sir. Now, we see these extreme examples of no mercy with, with genocide and things like that, but I bet you if I were to poll most of you here this morning, most of you probably had an experience in your life where you were the victim of somebody not showing mercy to you whether it was being bullied or being stabbed in the back or being mistreated or being maligned or being made fun of or being criticized or being left out. You've been a victim of, of somebody that did not show mercy. And yet when we think about God himself, our great God, 
Do you realize one of the key, chief characteristics of God is his mercy? In the Old Testament, do you remember the story where Moses wanted to see God's glory? And God would not allow Moses to see his glory, so he stuck him in the cleft of the rock, and, and Moses got to see the backside glory of God. But, but God gives Moses his name. And this, this repeated phrase is used all throughout the Old Testament to describe who God is. And you're probably very familiar with it. It comes from Exodus chapter 34, 5 through 6. Hear the word of the Lord this morning. The Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there, that's Moses, and proclaimed the name of the Lord. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Merciful. If you go back and look at that Hebrew word, it's a very interesting word in the original language. It means a love of a parent for a helpless little baby. It's this image of, 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 of a nursing mother taking care of a baby that can't take care of itself or a father bending down to help a child that's helpless. It's this image that God is a father. God is a parent that bends down to help those that are helpless, to help those that are hopeless, and he, and he reaches down in grace and mercy. And that's how God defines himself. I am a God who is merciful and slow to anger. And not only does it describe God the Father, but Jesus the Son is described as merciful. In Hebrews chapter 2, verse 17, it's talking about Jesus here. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, talking about Jesus, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. When you think about the cross, that Jesus made propitiation, just a big word, the fact that Jesus took our sin, Jesus took our shame, the cross drips with the blood of mercy from a merciful Savior. So God himself is a merciful God. And so we want to go and look at the words of Jesus in our Beatitudes this morning. We're drawn to his words. So if you will, let's look at Matthew chapter 5. And we've been in here for, for many weeks now. But I want to go back to, chap, to, to verse 1 just to set the stage so we can see the unfolding of these Beatitudes. If you remember, there's a logical progression. They, they build upon one another. So let's start in Matthew chapter 5, verse 1. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. And where we're going to camp out this morning, verse 7, blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. There, there's a logical progression here in the Beatitudes. So before we really understand what it means to be merciful, Let's just kind of go back and, and, and review real quickly. What's the first beatitude? Being poor in spirit. When you realize that you are spiritually bankrupt before God and, and nothing in my hand I bring, simply to the cross I cling, you realize that God comforts you. God comes and gives you salvation. Secondly, you mourn. You begin to mourn over your sin. You begin to grieve over your sin. You realize that you've, you've offended a holy God and God comforts you in salvation. And then blessed are the meek. We realize we're nothing. 
We live as though we are nothing with the promise that we will possess everything. It's that restrained humility. It's that power under control. And, then, and we looked at it last week. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. We have this longing. We have this pain. We have this angst for righteousness, for holiness, for, for, for walking in God's ways. And notice what it says. They shall be satisfied. They shall be filled. So right on the tails of being filled with this righteousness comes the next the next beatitude, which is, blessed are those who are merciful. So, so we're shifting gears here. This is how we relate to other people. And so how we can show mercy to other people comes from the fact that we've been filled with the righteousness that comes from Christ because of what God has done for us. You see, because God has shown us mercy, we in turn can show mercy to other people. We begin to have a new heart towards others. We begin to have a new attitude towards others. We need to have, we have a radically different way of orienting ourselves to other people because of the mercy and the grace that we've received. The overflow of that mercy and grace extends to other people and we begin to treat people with mercy. So what I want us to do this morning is I want us to see three specific issues related to this passage of scripture. First, I want us to see mercy defined. What is mercy Jesus is talking about? Then I want us to see mercy illustrated. How do we see it in action? And then thirdly, mercy promised. What's the promise in this beatitude that comes in the second half of the verse? So Jesus tells us, first of all, blessed are the merciful. So let's, let's talk about mercy defined. Well, what is he really talking about when Jesus says, blessed are the merciful, what, what does it mean to be merciful? Now, we need to remember something about the Beatitudes. These are not natural personality traits. These aren't things that you can just produce in and of yourselves. Remember, these come when the Holy Spirit gives you new life, gives you new birth. These are supernatural qualities that come as a result of the fruit of the Spirit in your life. And so you can't begin to be merciful unless you are a believer and God has done a change in your heart. And so what does it mean to be merciful? There's two aspects of merciful when you kind of trace the meaning of this word to the scriptures. First of all, it involves a, an attitude, a heart, a heart of empathy, a heart of tenderness, an attitude. But secondly, and more importantly, that heart translates into action. It's an attitude and an action. You don't just feel sympathy towards someone. It actually translates into a specific action of showing mercy to that person in concrete, specific action. It's, it's a desire to relieve those who are in pain, a desire to empathize, a desire to do something about the suffering of other people. Listen to what the, uh, the Apostle John tells us in 1 John three seventeen. The Apostle John says this, But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? If you see the need and your heart goes out, but you actually don't do anything about it, you close your heart, John's saying you haven't gone far enough. It's not enough just to have an attitude. It's not enough just to have the heart. You've got to actually meet the need. It's got to translate into action. It's got to translate into to something concrete. There's, a weird, there's a, a weird law in the Old Testament. Sometimes when you read the Old Testament, you come across these weird laws, and you're like, what in the world does this mean? Well, let's look at a weird law. And see how it applies to us. Exodus 23, verse 5. If you see the donkey of one who hates you lying down under its burden, you shall refrain from leaving him with it. You shall rescue it with him. Okay, Sean, why'd you bring up a verse about a donkey in a ditch? 
this principle is here is there's a donkey lying in the ditch of a person that you really don't like. And God says, go help the person you don't like and help relieve the suffering of that donkey and go show some pity on the donkey. Now think about this. Some of you are laughing. It's kind of funny. Show pity on a donkey. And that's the point. If a donkey is important to God, how much more are people important to God? If a donkey is struggling, the principle is how much more valuable are people? We should alleviate the need of people, even people we don't like, because it says a person that you hate, go help him with his donkey. Now listen to Proverbs eleven seventeen: A man who is kind benefits himself, but a cruel man hurts himself. The opposite of mercy is cruel, cruelty. A cruel man hurts himself. We see these words in Romans chapter 12, verses 9 through 10. Paul says, let love be genuine. Abhor or hate what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. So let this love be genuine. Not, not just say we love one another, but let it be genuine in the fact that we actually do something about it. And then in Colossians 3.12, clothe yourselves or put on as a garment as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience. Wear these like your clothes. One commentator defined mercy this way. He says, it's a generous attitude which is willing to see things from the other's point of view and is not quick to take offense or gloat over other person's shortcomings. You see, a merciful person doesn't gloat. You don't get in the, purse, or in the person's face and smugly say, I told you so. You don't take revenge. You don't nitpick. You're merciful. You don't gloat. You're not self-seeking. You don't stab them in the back. And so why do you show this mercy? You show this mercy because Christ has first shown you this mercy. Because the king of the kingdom, remember Jesus is the king of the kingdom. This is the the blessings of being in the kingdom. And the king himself of the kingdom has taken you out of one kingdom. He's taken you out of the kingdom of darkness, the kingdom of Satan, the kingdom of your sin. He's taken you out of bondage. He's shown you mercy. He's brought you into a new kingdom, the kingdom of his beloved son. He's brought you into this new relationship, this new identity, this new society. And because of what Christ has done in rescuing you and showing you mercy and giving you a new identity and saving you from your sins he's positioned you now out of the overflow of what he's done for you to begin to extend that same type of mercy to other people because you've been shown mercy you've been freed to radically show mercy to other people when you think about salvation it is a radical change you've been radically changed from one kingdom to another and now because of that you can radically show mercy to other people because at this point you know where you came from you know who you are you were once a hostile enemy rebel of God and he rescued you in spite of that and he showed you mercy in other words here's what we do we don't see non-believers as the enemy we don't see other people as enemies we see them as prisoners of war Satan has captured them as POWs And they are lost, and they are enslaved, and they are not our enemy. They are prisoners of war. Satan's our enemy. And so with lost people, we look at them with empathy, we look at them with sympathy, we look at them with mercy, because we say, if it were not for the grace of God, I would still be there. 
I would be exactly where they are. And so I'm going to show mercy to those that may mistreat me. I'm going to show mercy to those that act stupid, that act crazy, that act sinful, because after all, they're sinners, and that's their nature, they're POWs. And then to believers, we can say, you know what? I may not like you, I may not agree with you, but we're brothers, sisters in Christ, and so I'm going to show you mercy because of the mercy that Christ has shown me. When you realize that God was not obligated to show you mercy in the first place, your whole perspective changes. Was God obligated to show you love and affection and attention and mercy? No, he wasn't obligated to do that. If he was obligated to do that, then it would be something that we could earn or deserve or something that that we could work for. But in his grace and his mercy, he chose to show us mercy. Martin Lloyd-Jones has said this. He says, if I'm not merciful, if I'm not merciful, there's only one explanation. I have never understood the grace and mercy of God I am outside of Christ, I am yet in my sins, and I am unforgiven. He flat out says, if you don't show mercy, it's probably the fact that you're not saved. You haven't shown mercy yourself. Now listen to uh, James 2.13. For judgment is without mercy to the one who shows no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. Praise the Lord that happened in your case. What would happen if judgment triumphed over mercy? If judgment triumphed over mercy, all of us would still be in our sins, we would be hell-bound, and we would not have salvation. But mercy triumphs over judgment because of what Christ has done. I don't know if there's a way to turn the air on back here, guys, but I'm warm. Are you guys warm? I see some of you like you're about to faint. What was that? You got it going. Okay. I know when I start getting warm, yeah, we'll, 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 we'll get Okay. So here we go. It's not just an attitude of mercy, but there's action behind it. So let me just kind of give you three concrete ways you can show mercy in in an action, okay? Two of these are no-brainers. One of these you're going to scratch your head and say, where's Sean coming from on the third one? Okay, here's the first way you can show mercy. The first way you can simply show mercy is by just sharing the gospel with those that are POWs, those that are lost. I mean, that's a no-brainer. You want to see those who are in their sins rescued from that. You were once in your sins. You were once lost. You've been saved. You've been, you've been rescued. You want to share the message of hope with them. And so one of the, the, the key ways you can show mercy is to share the gospel with lost people in the hopes that God would save them out of their sins. The second way you can show mercy is just by praying for people. How often when we share prayer requests do you secretly think to yourself, I'm so glad that's not me. Or we begin to judge the other person. Or we begin to think, my goodness, they're going through a lot. Or do we empathize? When we share a prayer request, do we empathize? Do we sympathize? Do we we bear one another's burdens? Do we we desire to, to love and show mercy to one another in the way that we pray for one another? Listen to what 1 Corinthians 12, 26 through 27 says. If one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. Now you are the body of Christ and individually members of it. If one member suffers, we all suffer together. If one member's honored, we all are honored together. We, we share prayer requests. So those are two no-brainers. Sharing the gospel with lost people is a way to show mercy. Praying for people is a way to show mercy. Here's the third one that you're going to have scratching your head. We show mercy by confronting and rebuking a person that's in sin. Now wait a minute. That doesn't sound very merciful. I thought mercy meant that we just let anything go. 
You just let people do whatever they want. You just love people. You empathize with people. You, you, you just kind of shrug sin under the carpet. You don't confront. You don't rebuke. People can just get away with whatever they want because after all, we just want to be merciful. Sometimes the most merciful thing you can do is be used as an instrument of God to get in the face of someone who's living in sin and rebuke them and correct them. That could be an act of mercy because what's the ultimate goal? If somebody's in a life of sin and they continue in that path of sin, it's going to leave a wake of destruction and they could almost cause all these problems. What's more merciful, to let them continue on that path or to confront them and say, wait a minute, let me confront you in your sin as an act of mercy to prevent you from more heartache and more pain because I may be used by God in this moment to, to, to bring you to repentance. That's what Paul says in Romans 2.4. Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? And then in Galatians 6, 1, Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourselves, lest you too be tempted. So if somebody is sinning, we are to restore that person in a spirit of gentleness. It doesn't say don't restore them. It says restore them in a spirit of gentleness, in a spirit of mercy. Okay, so we've seen mercy defined. It's this longing to empathize and show compassion and show tenderness, and our heart goes out to people, and it's not just an attitude, but it's an action of wanting to alleviate suffering. So let's, let's secondly talk about mercy illustrated. Okay, mercy defined, mercy illustrated. And the best place that I can think of to see mercy illustrated is a passage that you're very, very, very familiar with. So if you will, turn with me in your Bibles to Luke chapter 10. We're going to kind of jump over to Luke's gospel just for a moment and read a passage of scripture that's very, very familiar. And sometimes when we read a passage of scripture that's familiar to us, it can be kind of dangerous because we've read it so many times that sometimes we just tune out and say, I've heard this so many times, I don't, I don't really need to listen. But this is the parable of the Good Samaritan. We see in the parable of the Good Samaritan mercy illustrated. So let's read this together. Let's start in verse 29 of Luke chapter 10 and read this very familiar passage of Scripture. But he, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, Who's my neighbor? And Jesus replied, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance a priest was going by that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I will repay when I come back. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? He said, The one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, You go and do Likewise. Now, obviously I could preach a whole sermon on the Good Samaritan, and we don't have time to do that, but let me just give you four brief observations from this passage of Scripture. Four brief observations. Here's the first observation. The Samaritan saw the distress. Notice how many times the other two guys walked by and they saw and they just kept walking. 
But the Samaritan saw the distress. His eyes were open to it. His head wasn't buried in the sand. He wasn't walking with tunnel vision. He was walking with an awareness to see the need. So he saw the need. So secondly, not only did he see the need, but he was moved. It said he had compassion upon that man. There in verse 33, it says that when the Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, when he saw him, he had compassion. That word compassion means he was moved to the very inner core of his being and his gut spilled with with compassion. He saw and then he was moved internally. He had pity, he had empathy, he had mercy. But that didn't just go far enough. He could have, at that point, he could have walked on by and said, I feel compassion for you, I feel empathy for you, I feel like you're in trouble, go have a nice day and walk on by. But that's not mercy. Remember, mercy is more than just an attitude. It's an action. So let's look at the third thing that he does. He sees it, he feels it, but then he does something about it. We see this in verse 34. He actually backs it up with concrete action. He went to him, bound up his wounds, pouring oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. He did something physically concrete about the need he saw. He took care of him. He bound up his wounds. He paid for his night at the hotel, if you will. So he actually backed up the empathy with action. Now, I can tell this story this morning because my parents are here and they know the story. They're kind of the stars of this story. And I didn't plan it for them to be here to tell the story. But when I was in, um, I think it was sixth or seventh grade, our family went on a vacation to um, New Mexico, and we stayed at Glorietta. You know, the, our youth have stayed there, and so as we, we, we went out and did some day trips and traveled out into the mountains, and so we went out to the mountains one day to go hiking and to go playing in these creeks and, and things like that, and on the way back, we're driving down this windy mountain road, and I'm on the, I'm on the passenger seat in the back seat, and, and over to the side on the road, we see this woman with her to- clothes are kind of torn. She's got blood on her. Her face looks terrible. And there's a guy kind of strangling her on the side of the road. And I first saw it, and I think my mom saw it, and it's like, okay, are they just playing around? Is this, what's going on here? And so we drive a little bit further, and my mom says, we need to go back. And I think, Dad, you said, I don't, I don't think so. I think we need to keep going. <laughs> and my mom said, no. I feel something in my spirit. We need to go back and help that girl. So we drive around, and of course, I'm in seventh grade, and my brother's in fifth grade, and we're like, what are my parents doing? And so we go over there, and my mom says, open the door for her. So I open the door, and and she looks at me, and then the guy looks at me, and she runs and gets in the car. And she closes the door, and she sits between me and my brother, and and she smells like alcohol, and she's got blood, and my brother and I's eyes are this big, and and she barely speaks in in English, and she says, you better drive fast because he's got a gun back in his truck. And so at that point, my dad kind of started flying through the mountains, and we drove her to a police station and basically, you know, took care of her at that moment. Had no idea what was going on, but we saw a need. Now, it could have been very easy at that moment to say, well, they were just playing around. What happens will happen, and just kept driving. But sometimes being merciful means taking a risk. It means taking, going the extra mile. It means sometimes stopping and saying, you know what, if I'm going to be merciful, it may be inconvenient, it may not be comfortable, but to truly show mercy to those that are in need, I may have to back it up with concrete action. It may mean you have to take a risk to do that. It may mean you have to go the extra mile to show mercy. Here's the fourth observation from this Good Samaritan story. Not only did he see 
the need. Not only did he feel the need, not only did he actually take care of the need, but fourthly, he did all that by breaking socioeconomic, racial, and ethnic barriers. Meaning that that sometimes we show mercy to people that are different than us. Now think about a Samaritan for a moment. If you know anything about the Samaritans, they were half-breeds that were hated by the Jews. The Jews hated them. They did not get along. And so the Jesus tells this story as a way to shock his audience into thinking, wow, a Samaritan would do this. And so he crosses a socioeconomic, a cultural, a racial barrier to take care of somebody. And so mercy says, I don't look at the color of the person. I don't look at the ethnicity of the color of the person. I don't look at all those things. I look at them as what God looks at. I look at them as a person, as a person in need, regardless of background, and I'm going to meet that need. Because people are people, and sometimes mercy needs to bypass prejudices and preconceived notions and socio and economic barriers and uncomfortable situations and say, I'm going to show mercy because it's the obedient thing to do in these types of situations. Okay, so we've seen mercy defined. It's this heartfelt desire to alleviate a person in need, both with attitude and action. We've seen mercy illustrated, especially through the Good Samaritan, where he saw it, he felt it, he did something about it, and it was uncomfortable because it was a breaking of a socioeconomic or an ethnic or or a racial barrier. But let's thirdly look at the big issue for this morning. Let's look at mercy promised. Mercy promised. Let's go back to Matthew just for a moment because let's look at the second half of the beatitude. Jesus says, blessed are the merciful. Congratulations to you if you show mercy. You are a recipient of God's grace as a result of showing mercy. And then there's the four, for they shall receive mercy. Now we need to be real careful here. I've struggled all week with how how am I going to explain this? Because if we don't get this right, we can royally mess up the gospel and walk out of here with a different interpretation that Jesus meant. What is Jesus saying here? If you read this at first glance, it almost sounds like a yin-yang type of karma. If you show mercy, then you will receive mercy. If you don't show mercy, you won't receive mercy. So if I better show mercy... Because if I don't, at the end of the day, I may either lose my salvation or not sure if I'm going to get to heaven. And the extent to which I show mercy, God's going to show me mercy. So I live in fear, wondering if I've shown enough mercy. Is it a cause and effect type issue that the more I show mercy, the more I'm going to receive mercy? And if I don't show mercy, I'm not going to receive mercy. And I really don't know at the end of the day if I'm saved or not because I haven't been merciful enough. Is that what Jesus is talking about? No. And let me give you three reasons why I don't think that's what he's talking about. Here's the first reason. We've got to remember Jesus' audience. Who's his audience? All along we've been talking about his audience. He is preaching to Christians. Go back to verse 2. He opened his mouth and taught them. And if you go back to to verse 1, it's his disciples. He is talking to people who are already in the kingdom. They've already been saved by grace. They've already been a recipient of salvation. So this has nothing to do with salvation. Because he's talking to people who have already been saved by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone. His audience is believers. It's already assumed that they've been a recipient of salvation mercy. So that's reason number one, his audience. But number two, if this were a salvation type of situation, where based upon the if-then, if you show mercy, then you will receive mercy and salvation— then nobody would be saved. How many of you sitting here have shown mercy 100% of the time? 
how many of you have truly been merciful all the time to people that you may not even know? So if it's a, if it's a yin-yang karma type thing where if I show mercy and I'm going to receive mercy, then there's no hope for any of us because how do we know we've done enough mercy to receive mercy? And thirdly, and this is just common sense, the rest of the Bible teaches salvation by grace. I mean, every other passage of Scripture that you can think of in the New Testament and even in the Old Testament talks about how salvation is a free gift of grace that comes in the gospel where Jesus saves us by grace alone, through faith alone. It's a free gift of the gospel. So it would nullify everything that is taught in the rest of the Bible. So, so what is Jesus really saying here? Is he saying it's a conditional, that, that, that if I show mercy, then I'll receive mercy, salvation type thing? Is that what he's talking about? No, I don't think so. I think what he's talking about is a general principle about living out the Christian life. And it's a basic principle that says this. The more that you show mercy to people, the more that you show compassion to people, the more you're going to experience the joy of your salvation and being obedient. The more that you're going to enjoy the mercy that you have received from Christ, the more you are going to show evidence of your salvation. Because remember, we've already been filled with righteousness. We don't, we don't show mercy in order to get righteous. Because Jesus said just one verse earlier, you have been filled with righteousness. So basically what I think he's saying is the more merciful you are, the more evidence it shows that you've received mercy and you truly enjoy the benefit of being blessed as a child of God. If you don't show mercy you're probably going to be a miserable person. You're probably going to be a selfish person. You're probably going to be a cantankerous person. You're probably going to be a cruel person, and you're not going to enjoy the the joy of your salvation. Now, let's look at this played out in another illustration. So turn to Matthew chapter 18. Let's look at one other little illustration here. This story actually would have shocked Jesus' readers as well. Jesus, let me just say, let me just give you a little side. Can I just give you a little side sermon here? Whenever you read a parable by Jesus, it's meant to shock. You never are neutral when it comes to a parable. You can't walk away from a parable and go, oh, that was cool. You either walk away scratching your head, you either walk away mad, you either walk away confused, you either walk away enlightened, but you don't just come away from a parable going, that was a really interesting little cool read. You walk away from a parable going, wow. What is Jesus trying to tell me here? And he shocks us here. So let's read this parable in Matthew 18, starting in verse 21. Peter came up to him and said, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times seven? And Peter's probably thinking, okay, I'm going to do the math. Three times is really good. If I multiply three times two, that gives me six, and I add one for good measure, seven. That's going to be really good, Jesus. Seven times. That's a good biblical number. And Jesus said to him, I do not say to you seven times, but 70 times seven. Now, does that mean when you get to the 491st time, you don't forgive anymore? No. He's going to give a parable. Here we go. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. When he began to settle, one was brought to him and owed him 10,000 talents. Now, let me explain to you what a 10,000 talents is. You may have a, a little note down there. It's basically 20 years wages, millions of dollars. Let's just say, let's just make it a million dollars. So he owed him a million dollars. And since he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold, his wife and his children, and all that he had in payment to be made. So the servant fell on his knees, imploring him, have patience with me and I will pay you everything. Could he pay him a million dollars? No, even on his best day, trying hard to repay this, there's no way he could repay a million dollars. He's begging and pleading, I'll pay you back the million bucks. Can't do it. Then verse 27, And out of pity for him, 
or out of mercy for him, the master of that servant released him and forgave him the debt. Been forgiven of a million dollars, it's forgiven, go in peace. I'm not going to put your family in prison, go. You've been forgiven of a million dollars. Okay, here we go. Verse 28. But when that same servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii, 50 bucks. You've been forgiven a million dollars, you see your friend who owes you 50 bucks. What are you going to do to the friend that owes you 50 bucks when you've just been forgiven of a million? Well, let's go find out. Seizing him, he begins to choke him, saying, pay what you owe. So his fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him, have patience with me and I will pay you. He refused and went and put him in prison until he should pay the debt. When his fellow servants saw that what had taken place, they were greatly distressed. And when they went and reported to their master all that had taken place, then his master summoned him and said to him, you wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt, that million dollars, because you pleaded with me. And should you not have had mercy on your fellow servant who owed you 50 bucks as I had mercy on you? And in his anger, the master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. So also my heavenly father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. What's the point of the story? Those who have begun forgiven majorly should be the first to go forgive others majorly. Those who've been received this amazing amount of mercy should be the first to go extend mercy. And the point of the story is that this guy's attitude, this guy's actions weren't consistent with who he was. I mean, he had been forgiven majorly. And the first thing he does when he goes out and he's forgiven majorly is he goes and chokes the guy because he owes him 50 bucks. And so what I think what's happening here is that God will discipline, God will discipline a child of his who's acting mercilessly as a way to bring about repentance so that you begin to act mercifully. Does God discipline those he loves? Absolutely. Hebrews 12, 5 through 6. And have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard, regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him, for the Lord disciplines the one he loves, and he chastises every son whom he receives. Here's what I think it's saying, is if, you don't show, if you're a Christian and you don't show mercy, if you're a Christian and you close up your heart, if you're a Christian and you have a cruel heart and you're not showing mercy and you're being cruel and you're being cantankerous and that's your attitude and your action, God may discipline you as a way to bring about repentance in your stubborn heart for you to begin to show mercy to others. And it could be painful in how he does that. I think that's the point of this parable. God may withdraw some of the blessings temporarily in your life as a way to get your attention so that you begin to act mercifully towards others. Listen to what um, John Stott says about the gospel. The gospel is good news of mercy to the undeserving. The symbol of the religion of Jesus is the cross, not the scales. The scales the balancing scales. My good works outweigh my bad works, so at the end of the day, God's going to love me more because I've done more good than bad. That's all thrown out. God shows mercy to those that don't deserve anything and gives them grace. Now, what happens if somebody doesn't show mercy back to you? What if you're merciful and somebody doesn't show mercy back to you? Is, this, is Jesus saying that in 100% of the cases, when you show mercy, people will be merciful back to you? That, that can't be true because we've experienced it. But does it matter? Does it really matter if somebody... Are you doing this so that somebody can give it back to you? Or are you doing this out of your new identity in the kingdom because it's what God wants you to do in showing mercy? 
They may spit in your face. They may laugh at you. They may, they may do all these things, or they may be about your best friend, but you don't show mercy to other people as a way for them to, to show you mercy back. You do it because you've been shown mercy, and out of the overflow of what God's done for you, you want to show mercy to others. So here's the ultimate question for you today. If you're here this morning, have you personally experienced the mercy that comes from Jesus Christ? Have you personally experienced this mercy deep down in your heart? Do you know this mercy? Let me read to you a passage of Scripture, Titus 3, 4-7. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, <clears throat> He saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to His own mercy. By the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom He poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by His grace, we might become heirs to the hope of eternal life. Think about this passage for a moment. All these beautiful things that God has done. God saved you. God has given you the Holy Spirit. God has washed you. God has given you eternal life. God has declared you not guilty. God has showered you with, with salvation. Why in the world did God do that? If that's true of you this morning, why did God do that? Was it because you're all that? Is it because God saw something in you that you were more spiritual or you were smarter or somehow you had your act together and God looked down and said, I think I'm going to save you because you've got it all together. What's the passage say? In verse 5, it says it was according to his own mercy. Why are you saved this morning? Why do you have a relationship with Christ? Why are you a new person? Why have you been showered with grace? Why are you still not in your sins? Why are you not a rebel anymore? Why are you not dead in your sins? Why are you not on a one-way ticket to hell? Because Christ in his mercy decided to reach down and save you when you didn't deserve it, and he's shown you mercy. And so my question for you this morning is some of you have experienced that. Many of you have experienced that, but some of you here this morning may never have experienced that. And my prayer for you this morning is that you would experience the mercy that comes from Christ. And think about this for us as Christians. If that is true, if we have a new identity in Christ and he saved us, then what's the ultimate result? We should be the most merciful people on the face of the earth. We as Christians should be the most merciful people. The most merciful people. Many of you have heard the story of Corrie Ten Boom. She was a Dutch woman who wrote the book The Hiding Place in 1971. She was um, in Holland during the time of the Nazis, and she would hide Jews in her home, thus called The Hiding Place. And so she as a family took major risks to hide Jewish people in their home. She showed mercy to those that were being exterminated by Hitler. And they paid a dear price for it because their family got caught. And she ended up having to go to Ravensbrück concentration camp for women, and her sister Betsy died there in the concentration camp. Horrible things happened there at that concentration camp. Well, she was let go by a clerical error, and she was able to be released. After the war was over, she began to make the rounds in Europe and even in America giving testimony of what God had done in her life, how she had saved those Jews, how she had shown mercy, how God had shown mercy on her. And so she's in, she's in Munich one night teaching, giving her testimony in a church, and she looks up and she sees this balding man, and then the visions start racing back into her head. 
That's the cruel guard at Ravensbrook Prison who used to do merciless things to me and my sister. And here I am talking about the love of Christ and that man is standing right there. And then to make matters worse, her talk was over and the man started coming up to Corey Ten Boom. And she starts to really struggle at this point because here's the guy that was the, this, the, the cruelest prison guard in the concentration camp. Comes up to Corey Ten Boom and says, Fräulein, I appreciate everything that you said tonight because I want you to know I've become a Christian. Christ has saved me. And because of what Christ has done in my life, I need to ask your forgiveness because I did some very terrible things to you. Will you please show me mercy and forgive me? At that moment, Corey Tim Boom was faced with the choice. Do I forgive the man? Do I shrug it off? So she prayed with every ounce in her being that the Holy Spirit would give her help and she reached out her hand and she says, Christ has forgiven me. I forgive you. Now she did two acts of mercy. One to those that you would, you would imagine. Helping the Jews escape. An act of mercy, an act of risk. Opening up her home, the hiding place. We resonate with that. But the other act of mercy is a hard thing to do. Forgiving someone who hurts you. And in both cases, Corey Tim Boom didn't just feel mercy. She showed mercy with concrete action. Risky, concrete action. How in the world could she do that? Only by the grace of God in her life and the mercy that he showed her. So as believers, we're called to do the same thing. What does Jesus say in the Beatitude? Blessed are the merciful, for they shall be shown mercy. Let me ask you to bow your heads this morning. Let's make this real practical this morning. Maybe there's someone in your life right now that you just really are having a hard time showing mercy to. Or maybe there's someone in your life right now that is not showing you mercy. Spend some time in prayer asking the Lord to to flow your heart, fill your heart with mercy. Not just an attitude, but an action. And even that attitude and that action may be risky. It may be calling you to take a risk. And for many of you in this room, it may be that you've come here to watch the children or you just come in here for the very first time and you're, you're just kind of checking out Emmanuel Baptist Church and you have no really earthly idea of what I'm saying this morning. And I'm just glad that you're here. I'm glad that you've chosen to come and, and I'm glad that you have questions and, I, and you may be sitting there right now wondering what I'm talking about and, and maybe you're just, you're just struggling with some of the things. I just want to say I'm glad you're here because we, we want you here. We want you to come. We want you to come with your questions. We want you to come with your struggles. We want this to be a safe place for you to ask those questions, to, to, to find out what it means to have a relationship with Christ. And so I would just pray for you during this time that, that you would understand what it means to have a relationship with Christ and you would experience that mercy for the very first time and and after the service this morning we'll have an opportunity for you to come down to the front afterwards if you want to and just talk to me or talk to one of our leaders and and have your questions answered we don't want to embarrass you we just let you come down after the service and and just ask us questions but we're just glad you're here
So whatever brought you in here this morning, whether you're, whether you're a longtime member, you've been here forever, or you just walked in off the street, we want you to understand that the ultimate issue for this morning is that Christ has shown us mercy in the cross so that we can in turn show mercy to others. Spend just a few seconds in silent prayer asking the Lord to open your heart to the truth of his word. Father, thank you for your grace. Thank you for your mercy. Thank you for your love. Help us to be merciful to others because you've first been merciful to us. And Lord, if there's anybody in this room that's never been saved or has not experienced the mercy firsthand, may today be their day of salvation. We pray this in the strong name of Jesus. Amen.